All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Lyle Goldstein. He's formerly at the U.S. Naval War College. He's now at Defense Priorities and at the uh, Watson Institute at Brown University, the Cost of War Project and all of that. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Lyle? I'm doing great, Scott. Good to be back with you. Uh, good to have you on the show. And, uh, man, you wrote this really important thing that I read the whole thing of. Um, threat inflation, Russian military weakness, and the resulting nuclear paradox. Implications for the war in Ukraine for U.S. military spending. A few major points here, but let's start with, you got it right on this show that, yeah, they're going to invade all right. And I was skeptical because it was something that the U.S. government said. And actually, I did think... My main argument was a decent one, which was that William Burns is going to see a peaceful resolution to this somehow, because if there's one person up there who knows what he's doing, it's the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. That's pretty good, but apparently not. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. so I give you credit for that. You definitely saw uh, that the line had been crossed. And I think, as you said on the show, it was the attempted uh, putsch in Belarus in, was it 2021? That uh, really was the final straw for Moscow before they moved uh, on Ukraine here. Um, but so um, I guess. Before yeah, I we mean, get... I, I remember distinctly in that time frame, I think it was somewhere around 2019, even that uh, Putin started talking about red lines. And, you know, I mean, he's he's not going to use that word unless he means it. And um, I, I don't think it was uh, recognized um with adequate adequate seriousness. By the way, you know, I follow China too, and they're also using this word a lot. And I think they know exactly what it means. And uh, there's a failure to take to take these things with adequate seriousness. I think. Uh, but yeah, you know, my view that the war could have been prevented by uh, wise diplomacy, but uh, that was uh, uh, fully lacking in my view. Yeah. Well, and uh, I'll brag that at least the original version of the book that I'm working on now, which was a speech that I gave in 2020 that I had asked you what you thought of it. And you said you endorsed the thing. So that's the minimal version of the same speech that I gave, uh, right. Uh, just a week after the war began. Um, mm -hmm. but essentially the same narrative being that Bill Clinton and W Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden got us into this mess. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very sad. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always um, explaining to people that there's a lot of uh, paranoia, you know, nationalism and, um, um, you know, a lot of delusions on the other side as well. But, um, you know, um, Russia, as I point out in this research that I just published is, you know, it, it is a... Um, Russia is certainly a great power, but but a weakening one. And uh, that's been true for a long time. And, um, you know, but but, uh, you know, I think it's well known that powers that are are um, 
you know, facing very difficult circumstances will be inclined toward making desperate moves. So that's what you have in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All right. So and those are, I guess, kind of the major points of the study, right, is one, we don't need a big buildup because we can see that Russia clearly is not a threat to Poland or probably even Lithuania or something, right? Um, and also that uh, this paradox that you're talking about, that, geez, if they don't have much of a conventional force, what does that leave them with? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, these, uh, I mean, I honestly, I kind of hesitated to write this study because I thought the points were so obvious, but I, you know, maybe it's not, uh, you know, the, the you know, the people need to reflect on the fact that um, if you look at the Russian military power in the aggregate, uh, if you put aside uh, nuclear weapons, that um, Russia's military uh, is weak and has been weak for decades. I mean, um, you know, there were whole, uh, literally were for for more than a decade, you know, uh, Russia hardly built any warships or put any um, any aircraft into its air force. So, I mean, uh, you know, we shouldn't at all be shocked that it it's you know that these forces are not performing well in um, you know in this Ukraine war. Um, now, I will say um, some of us you know, including myself, probably overestimated Russian uh, military capability in some respect. But uh, in general, you know, this is a force that has been plagued by um, by accidents, um, you know, that have been occurring right along. Um, yes, occasionally, you know, they'll come out with a new fighter or something like that or a new uh, submarine. So it's not to say uh, they have no uh, capabilities at all. That's that's, you know, people often say, you know, uh, Russia's military may not be 10 feet tall, but it's also not two feet tall. That's right. Um, you know, uh, but, um, you know, the main point that that um, the, the U.S. defense budget is something like 10 times that of Russia. And then when you throw in the uh, NATO aggregate defense budget, and by the way, that does not include Japan, which uh, Russia is very worried about Japan generally. Um, and, and Japan has quite strong armed forces, although they don't call them armed forces. They call them self-defense forces. But, you know, in other words, Russia fully mans up its specific fleet and, and guards its specific frontier, you know, uh, quite uh, quite carefully because they're worried about it. But I'm not even including that in these um, aggregate figures. But if uh, NATO aggregate defense money, something like 20 times, not quite, but almost 20 times that of Russia, then you appreciate that Russia is in, from a military standpoint, in quite a desperate um, circumstance. And by the way, part of Russia's military weakness on the conventional side is that they do put a lot of resources toward the nuclear side. I mean, the amount of Russian military people working just on nuclear weapons is very large. Uh, But again, this is partly a result of their um, in in what they consider very inadequate um, conventional military forces. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, so there's a couple of things here when it comes to the current war and the threat of nuclear weapons. I mean, first of all, I think it's important that we have, you know, quote unquote, adults such as yourself talking about the risk of nuclear warfare here because I mean, sorry to be a jerk about it, but just from the point of view of John Q. Public, and I was raised this way, so I know that this is right, that essentially no nukes means 
like hippies with signs outside, but not experts in suits who know about this stuff. And all the wonky wonks at their think tanks have a very smart nuclear weapons policy, thank you very much, and don't need advice from a bunch of liberal hippie women out chanting in the street kind of attitude. So then when somebody like Henry Kissinger and George Schultz and William Perry and yourself say, hey, listen, these machines are really dangerous and they could be used and we need to be very careful about what kind of steps we're taking in a confrontation with a power like Russia. I think it's really important and I hope because of the social psychology of the situation, wow, that's the guy from the Naval War College, huh? That people stop and take a listen in a little bit different vein that it's not really a joke. And of course, my primary concern, and I learned this, I guess I've known this my whole life, but especially Daniel Ellsberg, is on about this, is the virtual impossibility of a limited nuclear war, where essentially once nukes start going off, everybody escalates until we're all dead. And there's essentially no way out of it. You might as well have Donald Rumsfeld sitting in every chair. So, um, mm. you know, I guess, but also let me go ahead and bring up the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Putin says, come on, that's a bunch of propaganda just because I threatened to nuke you 50 times, me and all my staff. It doesn't mean we're going to do it. And, and you're just trying to pretend that we need to do it when we have no need for nukes whatsoever. And of course, they would face plenty of problems if they did nuke Ukraine, not least of which would be the east winds and the blowback, the literal uh, backdraft. Uh, fall out onto their own territory. But anyway, so that's a lot to chew, but I know you can do it. So what do you say? Well, I mean, I think the risks are there. Uh, listen, I'm very pleased to hear uh, Vladimir Putin say at Valdai, I believe it was on the 27th, ironically on the anniversary of the most dangerous day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But um, we can talk about that. That a little, that's interesting. But he um, he did say um, fairly emphatically that that, Russia has no intention to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So I I find that statement encouraging because um, uh, now, of course, you know, we know that the, um, Putin is not always telling the truth. Uh, you know, he's often playing chess. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's fair to say on the nuclear question, he's been talking on both sides of his mouth, um, you know, on the one hand, offering very uh, robust warnings that are clearly nuclear uh, and on the other hand here, um, denying that he has, uh, and you know, the way he put it was, we have no need to do that. Um, which kind of leaves a bit of an out, right? Meaning if the need does arise, he, he would do that. Um, so I, I, you know, to me, uh, on this matter of nuclear weapons, words are cheap and we need to think deeply about interests, um, and how the situation is evolving. And I'm, I remain extremely concerned about the um, nuclear issue. Uh, before the statement, I, I must say I was, I was my, uh, how to put it, my concern had reached, uh, if you will, a peak level. Because Why? Because I'm watching this battle unfold in Kherson. And, uh, you know, we all know very well that uh, the, the forces in the Russian forces in Kherson are supplied over that the wide river. It's, you know, it's a challenging situation for any uh, for any military. And, uh, you know, Russia could face a kind of desperate situation. Now, you know, again, do you really want a uh, power with, uh, you know, something like 10,000 nuclear weapons to be in a desperate situation? I mean, no, you, you absolutely do not. And, I, you know, I must say, I, I think, well, I, I would like to believe that 
that there is no possibility to fight a limited nuclear war. I, I wish that was the case. It, that's just not how I see it. Um, you know, and we have to deal with objective reality. And the unfortunate truth, in my view, is that Russia is rather well prepared for a limited nuclear war. Uh, they have all the weapons in place. We, on the other hand, do not. And, and you know, I'm somewhat glad of that because it suggests that that our view, you know, that we are extremely reluctant to to go there and we should be reluctant. Uh, but um, I, I I can't say that Russia is reluctant. I mean, uh, well, the news law. Well, that, that's, I mean, hold they, on. Let me walk that back. They, they are. Of course, they're reluctant. They know they would suffer, you know, uh, an enormous loss of prestige. Um, they, they you're you're right to point out the radiation problem. It's not a small problem. Uh, and um you know, so I, and I think they would have to be utterly desperate to do it. On the other hand, uh, I have documented, uh, and those of you, you know, on my Twitter feed, you can see uh, at Lyle Goldstein, you can see I've documented uh, now probably nearly a dozen uh, very overt calls from from Russian hawks saying, "Hey, w we need to use this uh, now," uh, and and by golly, it will be uh, militarily useful. Uh, this is what they're saying, not me, but they are saying it will be military useful because uh, Russia, um, you know, because now uh, the Ukrainian forces do have large concentrations of armored vehicles and infantry and those, you know, can be dealt with um, with, with uh, tactical nuclear weapons. So I, I guess, you know, I continue to be I'm, I'm happy that Putin made this statement. I, I would like to see a lowering of tensions overall, just in general. Uh, I do think we the more this uh, war goes on, the, the more likely we are to see um, escalation to the nuclear level. And, um, and, and you know, there's so many ways that escalation could occur, uh, not just a Russian uh, first use uh, because of a battlefield um, uh, issue. By the way, I one last thing I'll say here, and again, you know, we can chew through the details here, Scott, and we should, but... Um, uh, there was a study at Naval War College, unclassified, so people can find this on Google, I think. Um, and uh, I participated in that study, uh, Naval War College. We brought in the best uh, best experts on both nuclear strategy and also on Russian defense policy. We put them in a room and asked them some tough questions like, when would Russia ever use these things, that is, tactical nuclear weapons? And, you know, the conclusions were were very stark. I mean, on the one hand, they said Russia is extremely reluctant, you know, unlikely to use these in any scenario. However, there was one caveat, one scenario where they did see use as quite possible uh, that was uh, identified as Ukraine and also noted that if um, if Russia was losing on the battlefield and these losses were, uh, you know, humiliating enough to threaten uh, the survival of Putin's regime. I think we're in those circumstances. And uh, that's very scary. I mean, I'm just saying uh, this was all predicted and thought out by people who were not swayed by emotions, who were just thinking, you know, logically uh, through a set of scenarios uh, back in 2019. And this is all in an unclassified study that's on the web, I think. Well, I think the director of national intelligence confirmed essentially that same argument as their high confidence assessment to the Congress in a hearing so that, mm -hmm. yes, we judge that if they lose the war, that the Putin government might consider that an existential threat to themselves, therefore the state, therefore the nation and take it that far right then and there. Right. And um 
you know, so I, I, I think um, if the U.S. is smart and, and our allies will play our cards correctly, uh, we should um, be much more cautious, I think, uh, and and start to seek an end game. I, I just fl floated across my desk minutes ago a new article in Foreign Affairs by uh, Preby and Cherup, I think, that is saying, you know, hey, you know, even if even if a, a um, peace in Ukraine is not right around the corner, the, the, the United States needs to start laying the groundwork for a, a, a way to get there. Um, so I, I haven't read the article carefully, but I intend to. But it's it's encouraging to see that a kind of blobby uh, publication like Foreign Affairs, that they're starting to uh, discuss uh, real uh real diplomacy it's appalling that there is no diplomatic track with with russia right now it's it's um that uh, you know if there was one lesson from the cuban missile crisis it's that <laughs> we must communicate with our uh, uh opponent or adversary whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. in especially in a nuclear crisis it's to me it's unforgivable that there's no that uh, blinken and lavrov are not uh, speaking on a daily basis well i mean i think the only um communication between them is just the American threat. If you use nukes, this is what we will do to you. That was the report is they made it very clear. And then they've pretty much made it clear publicly what they would do that they would. And there's, you know, multiple sources saying this. David Petraeus notably was seemed to speak for the administration when he said that they would destroy the entire Russian military, conventional military in Ukraine and sink the Black Sea fleet. And that's after they're already using nukes. So we think they're going to do then. And they just well, say like, that'll I, I work though, trust me. me. Yeah, I mean, I've read some of those uh, discussions and probably not all of them, but I don't find that threat credible uh, because uh, I think the United States knows that it would be, um, you know, that, that would be the end of the planet. That's why, you know, to me, um, I just, unfortunately, you know, I'm not... <laughs> again i wish i wish this was not true but i do think um in a way um russia has trumps here on the nuclear side why because they hold uh, they hold substantial superiority in tactical nuclear weapons okay they have many thousands of these and they're easily deployed our we have a few hundred and they're not easily deployed um so that that you know they're sending more now and that was what uh, they announced. They are, the but, but uh, you know, this is um, mm, these are. I can explain why I don't think these are easily deployed. But the, in a word, they're these are airdropped weapons, so that that requires quite a bit of handling. Right. Uh, How uh, insane is it that they're sending more tactical nukes to Europe right now in the middle of this crisis? Is that supposed to be some smart move in a game of bridge or something? That I don't understand. Well, it's another. It uh, to me, it's another desperate move. Uh, you know, I don't think we, I don't think, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're grasping for some kind of counter move here. Um, and, um, you know, they're looking for the right level to show resolve and capability without, uh, you know, setting up an explosion. But I guess just to finish my thought there is I think Russia has superiority in tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that's, that's pretty extensive. Um, and moreover, you know, they have at least parity uh, at the strategic level. So, I mean, uh, unfortunately, um, if I mean, my my understanding of how this might look is a um, fairly wide 
scale use of these things. In other words, I, I kind of doubt they would just deploy one or two. I think it would be more like a dozen. Uh, I don't know how the West would respond, but if the West did respond as you as you said, and and I guess Petraeus has said, but other you know smart people like Richard Betts, uh, who I respect very much at Columbia, said, well, our immediate reaction would be like massive conventional strikes across the board. At that point, I would expect Russia to unleash part of its strategic arsenal, meaning you know taking out an American city or at least an American base, you know, to say, okay, is this where you want to go? Um, uh, you know, whether it could be stopped at that point is a legitimate question. I don't know, but that's kind of my, uh, picture of the stepping right up to the apocalypse. And, you know, I, I hope Americans realize just how incredibly dangerous this is. I mean, uh, the president, um, said, I think on October, about October 6th, he said, you know, we are closer to, um, Armageddon than we have been in six years. I mean, that is just a, it's, it's an incredible statement and uh, should make all of us reflect, um, you know, in my view, you know, people, Americans should be in the streets. Like, why? How did we get here? As a national security specialist, I'm incredibly embarrassed for my profession that we allowed this to, to get to this point. Uh, we, we should never have been here. Um, and it's a, um, you know, it's a terrible day. We're not doing our job right. Um, we're not keeping the American people safe if, if, the, if we're that close to Armageddon. So, you know, I'm depressed and humiliated, but we try to carry forward and prevent the worst. Yeah, man. Well, listen, um, there's a couple of points here now. Uh, one thing is about the current troop buildup and force buildup inside Russia, the conventional force, the reaction to their loss of Northern Luhansk in mid-September there. And, According to Daniel Davis, uh, who I know, oh, he's also at Defense Priorities, your colleague there, who I know that you guys know and respect each other's work. Uh, Danny's terrific. He's, he's such an ace. Yes. Yeah. So he says there's a big conventional assault coming. And his only question is whether they're going to cut through Belarus and try to flank the Ukrainian forces in the West or not but that it's coming as soon as the ground is frozen and hard so they don't have to stick to the roads anymore and they can just blast through like the Americans in the Iraqi desert and do whatever they want. And so um, I wonder what you think about that part. Well, I I think that is possible. I mean, I, I have seen some signs of that, um, including, I think, what I believe in the last, you know, since Russian forces pulled back from Kiev um, and, um, uh, you know, generally focused on Donbass. Um, I, my sense is that they have been holding a lot of forces in reserve. Now, look, people, a lot of people don't realize, but Russia has to hold a lot of forces in reserve, right? Because they don't know. They may be at war with NATO in a week, um, you know. Uh, like I said, they're worried about, uh, they have other worries, um, not just what's going on in the Caucasus, which is, is you know, kind of dismaying, but over in uh, Tajikistan, and they have concerns uh, in the Far East, as I pointed out. So, I mean, Russia just cannot um, leverage all of its combat power against Ukraine. Uh, they, they must hold, you know, this kind of strategic reserve. Now, can those some of those reserves be deployed as for a kind of new set of winter offensives? Um the truth is, I haven't seen any hard evidence either either way. I mean, we have seen some uh, Russian troops go into Belarus. Uh, 
Um, my guess there, and it really is just a guess, is that though those forces have been more of a faint kind of a a uh, an attempt to have the uh, Ukrainians believe that that they have to watch their backs, that that they also cannot put all their combat forces say in, into Kherson, that they need to hold forces back uh, closer to the western border with Poland just in case. So um, that's kind of how I read that. Um, now, you know, it, I guess it depends how what kind of risk that that Putin is willing to take. I mean, like I said, uh, my overall evaluation is Russian forces are are strapped and, um, you know, I don't see a lot of light at the end of the tunnel there. I mean, it's true that like like I said, we haven't seen some of their crack uh, regiments and and their uh, elite forces haven't seen them fighting much in the last four or five months. Again, which may imply holding out for this uh, later offensive. You know, trying to apply some of the lessons they've learned. Yes, using you know, I have seen hints that you know Russia's eager for the leaves to fall because once the leaves fall, then they can um, you know really. Uh, take out a lot of the Ukrainian positions that are hiding in, in various forests and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, of course, that now kind of goes the other way, too, though, as as uh, Ukraine has uh, more and more artillery systems and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, and the cold also cuts both ways, right? I mean, you, it's not like Ukrainians don't know anything about winter. So I, I'm not so positive that... Um, that everything turns in Russia's favor uh, this winter. I, I if I had to, if I were a betting man, I would say we're going to see more more stalemate. Maybe I mean, Russia seems to have stabilized the line, and seems to be again making incremental progress um, around Bakhmut. And um, I, I guess yesterday I was the, the Russians are claiming a new breakthrough in the uh, around Ugledar, uh, which is near Zaporizhia a little bit. So uh, you know. We can maybe surmise that instead of going for the ultra ultra risky strikes against the, you know, you know, Western Ukraine or Odessa, that maybe Putin has taken kind of a middle ground, which would be to push hard into try to capture uh, more of Zaporizhia. So that that I think is is uh, quite plausible. But, you know, to me, I wonder if, um, you know, everybody looked at Putin's, uh, you know, this this uh, land grab, if you will, the, the uh, annexation of the four uh, Ukrainian oblasts. Everybody took that as an extremely aggressive maneuver by Russia. And yes, one can interpret it that way. But another interpretation would be they they were looking to 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 the end game, meaning Putin is, you know, has has thought carefully about his next moves and doesn't see any great military moves. Uh, he understands that this is more or less a stalemate and he's just trying to shore up his uh, support and and claim his uh, his land, you know, the, these areas and and wants to kind of move to to a, a settlement. And, you know, they have been right along for the last two or three months. The Russians have been saying we're ready to talk. Um, so, you know, to me, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's a long way of saying I, I'm uncertain. I think uh, we shouldn't be surprised if Russia launches winter offensives. But on the other hand, I, I don't think that they are, uh, um, you know, a sure thing. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton show. Thanks.
Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton's show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you Ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's LibertasBella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. All right. And by the way, in case it sounded like I was saying that Danny Davis said they're sure to win, he certainly did not say that. He was just saying the invasion is coming. Um, but, uh, in fact, you could say he was even giving the Ukrainians advice about how they might counter it in some of those mm-hmm. pieces. And if people can read it, uh, Danny at 1945, and I just talked to him last week. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, one thing I'll just say there is, uh, and, and this is often left out somehow of the Western analyses, like, like yesterday, I think there was a big, uh, New York times piece about how, you know, how wonderfully successful the Ukrainian military has been over the last two months and you know i think we do have to say that that there these offensive moves uh into lugansk and um along the dnieper there near kherson were, were quite impressive and surprising um and um show a lot of um how to put it you know let's face it military skill high morale you know high, you need highly motivated soldiers but i I mean, one thing, Danny, the point he's made again and again, and I have to agree with it, which is like, you know, in modern warfare to expect troops to to uh, advance steadily without air cover um, and without superiority in artillery is a mighty and, and almost unbelievable task. So so it's it's quite stunning what was achieved. However, you know, uh, I, I think this. Um, to, to expect that to continue is, is uh, I think, probably wrongheaded. And in general, like that New York Times piece from yesterday, um, you know, said a lot about artillery and spotting with drones. And yes, you know, Ukraine seems to have mastered that. Uh, by the way, the Russians also have gotten a lot better on artillery spotting with drones. So both sides, I would say, are quite good at that now. But again, uh, does that mean air power is not important? No, uh, it's air power remains incredibly important in this equation. And uh, the vast majority of the air power here is Russian. And now on the diplomatic question there, are you saying that you think that maybe his annexation of Kherson and Zaporozhye is essentially so he can trade them away and just keep the Donbass, make that look like a compromise kind of situation? You know, I don't see that. I just, uh, the way... Because that seems like biting off a lot and saying this is all officially Russian territory now. He's going to have to flood yeah. that territory with infantry to hold it forever, right? 
Uh, correct. And I, I, I think that may be a good way to understand the call up of the 300,000, which is like, you know, Russia's moving to end game. I don't think they have any great expectation that that uh, Zelensky and company are going to sign on the dotted line. So I think they seem to be moving toward a uh, if I read it, the way I read it is they're, they're moving toward a, um, okay, we're going to make a unilateral piece, meaning we are here's our border. It is these four provinces. Uh, again, that might kind of explain why they're trying to nibble some more off of uh, Zaporizhia and close the deal in Donbass, which is what we're seeing, um, so that they can you know, claim that they own the vast majority of these provinces. And then uh, you know, we settle into kind of a... Um, uh, almost like a, I guess you would call it a, a Korean Peninsula situation where there's no no formal peace, but but uh, the shooting stops, and that's what the Russians may hope for. I mean, like I, I understand uh, in the Kherson region, they've been using a lot of landmines, and I, I would expect Russia to deploy, you know, uh, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of landmines to create just you know impregnable areas uh, that that. Uh, you know, that the Ukrainian army could not possibly march through, especially again, without air superiority. So I, I personally think uh, probably they, they are moving in that direction. Um, I, I, I suspect Putin and his advisors, I mean, Putin is in a very, uh, I think he's in quite a vulnerable situation. Uh, I think Russians are growing discontented with this. I mean, they've been discontented, but they're growing more discontented. And I think he, uh, when, when the, when the year anniversary comes on February, I guess, 24th, um, I think uh, Putin will, I, if I had to step into his shoes, I'm pretty sure, which is not easy, but I, I think he will probably have to say, I, I uh, fought this for a year, did we did our best, and here's what we got, and, and this is, uh, we need to move on. Uh, the, you know, there's so many reasons why Russia is kind of under pressure now. And I think, um, you know, uh, the quasi-alliance with China, I don't know if you want to get to that, but I think the Chinese are are a bit nervous. Um, and, um, you know, so to me, uh, th this, uh, you know, Putin understands that that a, a war that goes on for two, three, five years is, is uh, will lead to probably the end of his regime. Yeah. All right. Now. For, for him to climb down after a year and say, well, we did blow up a lot of their military and got some of Donetsk. <laughs> like, I don't know if he's going to be able to to do that. Um, mm -hmm. These politicians, right? It's a public choice theory where it's not about Russian well, national well, interests. I don't, it's about his. I don't know if I agree with you there. I mean, look, I, again, it's not to... Uh, again, I, I watch a lot of Russian media so I can see what they're saying. And, um, you know, the Russians will beat their chests and say, hey, we, we own Mariupol. We got them out of the Sea of Azov. We got the water flowing to Crimea. You know, we liberated, you know, we said we were going to rescue our compatriots in Donetsk and Luhansk, and more or less they did. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, I'm just saying, they, I think they probably could, um, you know, I don't know that they can hold their heads high, but they will go home and say, you know, they did lop off, you know, in the end, uh, what, 20% of Ukraine, uh, and, and, uh, they, they regard this as their historical, uh, land that they have a right to. Would they like more? Absolutely. But I mean, um, I'm just saying I, I, uh, to me, mm, uh, you know, Putin has to be um, more than a little nervous um, that that his forces have been, 
you know, quite unable to uh, break the military uh, deadlock. Uh, and, and um, you know, so that doesn't, and as you pointed out, I mean, just holding the, the terrain he has got is going to be quite challenging yeah. going forward. All right. So uh, I do want to talk about China and all that stuff. As long as you got time, I got time to listen to you say things. But uh, I want to stick with this for just a minute. You mentioned sure. strategic nuclear weapons. And I have these pictures that I can't publish. I promised the guy I would never publish them because he doesn't have a proper copyright or this or that. But it's very high quality uh, panorama photographs that his grandfather took of Hiroshima. Based, I guess a 360 degree view of wow. the city completely decimated in high resolution. Just absolutely flattened. This is unbelievable. And yeah. um, so that's, I think, a 15 kiloton bomb there, which is, yeah. if correct me if I'm wrong, that's like pretty high on the scale of a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon, right? Yeah, I, I think it, it, I think it was 19 kilotons maybe. But okay. uh, anyway, it, it, very close to your estimate. Um, yes, that you got it right, Scott. Um, today, uh, there are weapons that are can be as low as five kilotons, but again, you know, so that's what a, a quarter of Hiroshima. So, still a you know completely uh, devastating weapon. And but yeah, strategic weapons. Uh, well, listen, a lot of people uh, really don't know a lot. People really don't know a lot about nukes. So, can you explain the difference between? the size of a Hiroshima bomb or a Nagasaki bomb compared to what you're calling a strategic nuclear weapon here, a thermonuclear bomb? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe, uh, you know, the, the I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the kind of standard strategic weapons are now, uh, you know, 100 or 200 times what... Uh, what was exploded at Hiroshima. So, you know, there are true uh, city busters and um, uh, often uh, thermonuclear uh, warheads. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, mostly Russia considers its arsenal kind of uh, a last resort and they've never kind of entertain this idea of a strategic level nuclear war that, that would be limited. So uh, I do believe they would target uh, American cities. And uh, indeed, they may have in mind a kind of uh, warning shot, uh, you know, that destroys one, two, three American cities as a kind of, um, you know, a reminder of what uh, devastation would follow. Um, I, it's a horrible way to think, but uh, I, I guess I'm in the minority here. But I, I unfortunately think these limited war scenarios are are there. I think our side has these scenarios and their side does. And, um, you know, we, we isn't must... that the greatest danger, right? That instead of mutually assured destruction, it's we think we can get away with it. But no, it does mean mutually assured destruction, but it just means they try it and then we all die. Yeah. So that is absolutely why. I mean, nobody knows what would happen. I mean, at the famous line, you know, uh, General or Admiral, uh, you know, I've fought as many nuclear wars as you have, uh, meaning nobody knows what would happen. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, when these nuclear strategists, as you pointed out, when they get up on their high horse and say, here's exactly what would happen, you know. Uh, nobody knows. And, and uh, you know, I, I hope some of the, your listeners might uh, see the movie 13 Days again. I just 
saw it again, you know, to honor the 60th anniversary of the, but I think it's quite a faithful telling. And, you know, uh, about the Cuban Missile uh, Crisis. Yeah, as a famous General LeMay and, and Kennedy uh, going several rounds and, and General LeMay saying, oh, Russia will never, never, will never resort to nuclear, its use of nuclear weapons at a strategic level because that would be, you know, national suicide. And Kennedy, in the film at least, and I think it's accurate, uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, dismisses the comment because he knows that uh, LeMay uh, is just is just speculating. And, you know, are you going to put the future of the planet on, on somebody's speculation? Absolutely not. And that's, you know, why, again, I underline the point that uh, uh, we shouldn't be in these circumstances. It never should have come to this level. We should have fully understood that uh, Ukraine is a... Uh, more or less within the Russian sphere of influence and that we shouldn't muck around too much in, in, in that area. We certainly shouldn't uh, consider coming to blows or even uh, anywhere close to it because of that. The same, by the way, apply the same logic to Taiwan. Uh, and and if we do uh, get into that uh, mess and, and muck around and consider a use of force and so forth, uh, that it would quickly escalate. I mean, these are really, to me, uh, just uh, this is just strategy 101. And I'm shocked that uh, people in my field are unable to assess that that this would be the case and to act with all due caution, which they have not acted with that caution. Yeah, uh, that's we- why I think we're here. But but yes, you, you, absolutely. Your your scenario is the, uh, the is the very darkest one. I guess mine is the next to darkest one, which is where where this limited nuclear war does unfold with devastating consequences. Um, you know, uh, tens of millions might die in a limited nuclear war. Um, the planet would end in a full nuclear war for sure. Uh, so Andrew Coburn has this great book on Donald Rumsfeld, his rise, fall and catastrophic legacy. And they talk about how during the continuity of government exercises in the 1990s, he would often play the president. He was a former secretary of defense at that time, once in future SecDef. And he would play the president and how he would lead the world in all the war games to total devastation, even when they had built into the game different off ramps from the war. Okay, we lost five cities and they lost six. And now everybody calls ceasefire. Nope, he wants to keep going and, you know, spread the war to China or whatever the hell it is. Uh, can't let them be the beneficiaries of us and Russia blowing each other's heads off, right? So got to take them out too, whatever, just craziness. And then there's just the whole doctrine of use them or lose them, right? That they're going to blow up our submarine pens. They're going to blow up our Minutemen silos. They're going to blow up our strategic air command, all our air force bases. So we got to launch those planes and launch those missiles and launch those subs and Polaris missiles and give them everything we've got before they can destroy it. And that's the kind of idiot logic that these brilliant geniuses have. This is their, you know, game theory. I wouldn't understand the algorithm, but it's so smart that it means that they launch everything and kill everybody. Yeah, I mean, this is all correct. And the thing that I find quite strange is that in the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually, we we had vast nuclear superiority over the Soviets. And we are still exceedingly careful. And today we don't have have nuclear superiority, not at all. And it's uh, we're absolutely, you know, I don't know any uh, military analyst who doubts uh, uh, seriously Russia's um, nuclear deterrence. So, um, you know, so it's painfully apparent to all that this we we're considering uh, the apocalypse and uh, Armageddon, as President Biden put it recently. So, if that's all true, then then why aren't we stepping back? And and why, you know, 
I've always maintained that the only way to get to a peaceful solution in so many of these crises is for the stronger party to use restraint and wisdom because the weaker party is too afraid to to show any kind of you know weakness. So to me, it is incumbent on the United States to to uh, be the um, wise one to be the you know to 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 step back um, if we can restrain our ideological impulses and think with our heads and not with our hearts. We would. Uh, quickly come to the conclusion that we need a open line of communication. We need to settle this uh, mess in Ukraine, partly for the sake of the Ukrainians who who are still alive, uh, and um, and move to a um, working relationship with Russia that involves arms control, dialogue, and you know managing uh, crises, in, including in the world economy, which which we haven't even mentioned. But uh, all, all these other, you know, second and third order effects of this, these kind of crises are there. I mean, uh, in that cost of war study I did, uh, we calculated that, uh, or I calculated the United States has already spent the equivalent of $10 trillion in uh, 2022 dollars uh, on nuclear weapons on, on this uh, wonderful vast arsenal we have um and that's set to continue this uh for for uh you know for forever if we if we continue with these kind of very risk-laden policies you know or we can try other approaches um to to our security um yeah so lyle uh real quick just parentheses for the listeners here if you're not that familiar you're kind of new at this if you just look on youtube when you see an atom bomb test in nevada that's a little one when they're testing it out in the Pacific Ocean, those are the big ones, the thermonuclear bombs. So go and take a look at that and see what we're talking yeah. about. We're talking about leveling New York City, all five boroughs, as though it was made of paper and straw like Hiroshima was um, and and that kind of deal. So wrap your head around that. But then so I want to get to what you're saying there about kind of it's really the social psychology of Washington, D.C. is what you're talking about here and of Langley and of whatever Northern Virginia where the Pentagon is, whatever county that is, that they call this every time I'm so sick of this my whole life. Oh, we're sleepwalking to war. Well, what does that mean? Everybody's awake. It's just they're stupid. And they're all essentially like a bunch of stupid college kids in a social psychology experiment that says that we have to all agree on this stupid, horrible thing. I know what we'll do. We'll take the side of the Libyan Islamic fighting group you know, Zarqawi's suicide bomber brigades against Muammar Gaddafi. Why? Because it's the latest fad. And we're sleepwalking to war for Al-Qaeda in Libya. Because that's what Samantha Power wants or something. And, and this keeps happening. And now we're talking, you know, a serious conversation here about the possibility of nuclear war. And this is what they say. We're sleepwalking to war, which just means that nobody has the balls to say what you're saying, which is blink into Geneva. What are we doing? How can we continue like this? As you put it, we, meaning the professionals there in, in the think tanks and so forth on the East Coast, you have a responsibility to keep me from getting nuked and you're letting me down. And yeah. how come you're willing to say that and the rest of them won't? They would rather sleepwalk some more until we're all dead, Lyle. What is yeah. going on? Well, by the way, I I have a bit of a theory here that I'm working on that I to explain some of this behavior, but it, it's not pretty at all. But I, I honestly, I think uh, a lot of national security elites uh, in this country 
including in Langley and elsewhere, uh, truly embarrassed by what transpired in the, you know, quote, endless wars, right? I mean, and, and what happened in Kabul was was horribly embarrassing for them. Uh, you know, after all, we spent, uh, what, uh, at least half a trillion or something just trying to uh, put the put a, put the uh, Afghan government uh, together so it could function and then it collapsed in a couple of weeks. So, I mean, to to cover up that embarrassment, to to erase that stain, uh, which is, as you know, is much, uh, you know, more about Afghanistan than I do, but it, but it, it is so uh, humiliating for our country. Uh, we, we need to some kind of grand distraction, something to uh, make us look good, feel good about things. Uh, and, and Ukraine has provided just a, a love, a lovely example in many ways. And, and I do give credit to, uh, brave Ukrainians who, who were able to hold Kiev and so forth under difficult conditions, but, uh, we should have recognized that this um, would spiral into a disastrous uh, morass, um, uh, much more dangerous than Afghanistan and so costly. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible that that we could get to this point. Uh, completely agree. I, I do. You know, I have to. This is such a dark conversation, though. I want to remind people of a couple of positive things. One thing is uh, President Putin said he would not resort to nuclear use in Ukraine. So I, I think let's underline that. Um, sure. So I think we may be at a better place this week than we were last week. And by the way, I just came aware of a, if you want to talk about China a little, you know, a Chinese uh, signal, I take it as a trial balloon by a um, retired uh, PLA colonel named uh, Joe Bo. B-O is, is his, um, uh, uh, well, anyway, it, it's a, it's a difficult spelling in Chinese, Z-H-O-U, and then uh, B-O. Um, but he uh, he said that uh, in the Financial Times, which is quite, un- I mean, it's also a little unusual for him to write in the Financial Times. So I, I think this is a signal, and China was kind of uh, saying in this, or he, he was saying, uh, Colonel Joe, that, that, um, that China w- would... Um, would uh, look very, uh, how to put it, uh, be, be very upset if, if Russia were to resort to nuclear weapons. So it seems to be this even a kind of overt warning to Russia that it should not uh, use nuclear weapons. Um, so now there, there are signals the other way, too, that, that China stands by Russia and so forth. But I think that that to me probably is also a positive signal shows that Beijing knows how serious this situation is and knows that that China also loses if there's a Russia US nuclear war uh, and the planet ends then then that will be absolutely uh, catastrophic for China as well and and therefore maybe uh, Beijing starting to step up and and realize it needs to rein um, also rein Moscow in a bit um, even as it calls for uh, continues to call for peace talks so I you know we could talk about China's role here but I I was glad to see that. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to change the subject to China in just one second, and that's a great segue. But first, I want to, on the last point, I just need your help because I think you're right, and I'm writing a book about this now, that same speech I'm turning into a giant book. Um, But uh, I'm going to have a section on that, and I already have at least one quote from Ben Rhodes, Obama's old guy, but I know there are a couple of others. But I'm collecting quotes of these goons saying, yes, we're being— we're." pouring weapons into Ukraine because this is our redemption for what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, never mind what they did to Somalia and Libya and Syria and Yemen. But they say, uh, yeah, you know, this yeah, is a- this is the good war. 
Uh, by the way, uh, one more thing. I so want to say. just I w- if you have more of those, like, please email me because I I'm building a like a stamp collection of Democrats saying, yeah, this is how we make ourselves feel good after all the terrible things that we did is doing yeah, this well, other also even more horrible thing. Well, I, I mean, for my part, I would have said, you know, I think after the fall of Kabul, we, we any common sense American would say, could we please now close the CIA? Like, why are we giving these people all this money if they're what they're doing is worthless? So, you know, the CIA is trying to say, hey, we, we can still uh, support U.S. interests and do some good things in the world with, with uh, by saving Kiev and all this. But uh, but to me, uh, you know, first of all, it doesn't wash away the stain of the last 20 years. And second, uh I think, you know, one reason we're in this pickle is because we decided that uh, we were going to save Ukraine and um, and and that meant uh, torpedoing all attempts at negotiation, including the Minsk Accord. Uh, I just uh, another thing I wanted to comment, maybe again, somewhat encouraging. Our conversation has been very dark, but uh, I was in Annapolis last week at a conference uh, it was kind of a hawk's den. I won't name any names, but uh, many, many hawkish voices there. And I, I was I must say I was quite surprised how many of them were coming round to the point that look, okay, yes, uh, they, they all believe to the hilt that that Ukraine needs to be supported and more weapons and, and billions and billions more for Ukraine. But they they also said there has to be a uh, eventually this has there has to be a settlement, and they seem to appreciate the huge damage to to the global system and the global economy, even among. Uh, all these hawks. So anyway, that's a little bit encouraging, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, and now I'm sorry, because I got to ask you to rewind one point, too. Can you elaborate a little bit about how they torpedoed Minsk? Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I know you follow that closely, as did I. But I mean, I, my own view is uh, during that critical time, um, I guess, as Trump was handing over to Biden, uh, there was a kind of glimmer of hope right there because um, I believe uh, that was when Zelensky and Putin actually sat down together and um, w- with Macron and Merkel. And, you know, to me, that was a huge opportunity. You know, that was the negotiation in the, in the Normandy format. And, uh, you know, I applauded uh, Merkel and and. Um, Macron for putting that together, uh, you know, trying to kind of knock heads together. I think the meeting between Zelensky and Putin was uh, uh, not a friendly one, but it was also, you know, the, the, they got to talk a bit. And, and that was the way forward. And, and as I read the signals from, uh, from Washington at that point, they were all thumbs down. You know, don't bother with this. Uh, the, the, we're not at the table. Uh, you know, we just need to send more weapons. And, you know, the, the most immediate uh, problem is that, that uh, God forbid, Zelensky, who was elected to make peace, might actually make peace with Putin. Uh, so that was the chance. And, and at that point, uh, as I read it, you know, Washington uh, wasn't even remotely favorable toward uh, toward walking this forward. Um, and, and the Europeans did not get the support that they needed. Uh, and um, both sides walked away and and uh, started to build up their uh, forces for the war. So I mean, it, it uh, it's very sad, and um, that was the last chance, in my view, last serious chance. There were other. I do think the Biden could have acted differently uh, through the uh, end of that diplomacy uh, in sort of November, December, twenty twenty one. So maybe there were other chances too. But to me, that was the Minsk uh, did provide an opportunity to give. Uh, 
Eastern, you know, to give the Donbass region substantial autonomy, but within Ukraine and uh, Russia probably would have gone along with that and and uh, buried the hatchet. But, uh, you know, the Ukrainians, I think, were too stubborn. And we we uh, ultimately encouraged their stubbornness by saying, hey, you just need more more javelins. Mm. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping, too. What do you think is the role, and I swear, we're going to get to China here in a minute. Uh, What do you think is the role of America's policy toward Germany? in all this because you know, I'm reminded of what Chalmers Johnson told me back 20 years ago or something that in the cold war, the Americans greatest fear in the world would have been a Berlin, Moscow, Beijing axis. In other words, for the reds to take over Berlin and once Germany and Russia are allied together, then they rule the world Island and American Britain are frozen out. And so he who controls the pivot land rules the world and all this stupid stuff left over from Alfred McKinder and all that. And I'm looking at Merkel back, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, saying she wants the Eurasian home alliance with Russia. And as part of that, she wants to build this pipeline. Might as well have called it the peace pipeline. Not so that Russia could blackmail Germany, but so that they could be economically interdependent and it's just funny to me because, I mean, first of all, you could tell me whether I'm totally on the mark or not, but it seems like if their biggest fear really is like the worst thing that could ever happen would be an alliance between Germany and Russia. It seems like the last two times the worst thing that ever happened happened. It was a war between Germany and Russia. And it seems like even if Texans never got to sell another cubic foot of natural gas again, who the hell cares when you look at the opportunity costs? for keeping the peace compared to having a war between Germany and Russia. And here looks like we might be dragging Germany into a war with Russia. And the whole thing is nuts. But I just wonder if you think that that's what this whole thing with Ukraine is really all about, too, is making sure to prevent the peaceful relationship between uh, Berlin and Moscow there. Well, I think you're you've really hit on it, Scott, as usual. I mean, the the. Um... The German, uh, the role of Germany in the in the future of Europe and in the world generally is of, of uh, 
critical importance. And and I think I give uh, Merkel and even Schrader, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, uh, credit for, you know, they had a deep understanding, uh, uh, you know, going way back into German diplomacy to realize that, uh, you know, the, the that they were absolutely uh, Germany should never go to war against Russia again. I mean, that to me was the the kind of uh, bottom line uh, plank of, of uh, German diplomacy. And they were absolutely right. And, and uh, they really have strayed away from that now and, and taken a more um, much more hawkish line in, in, and that's in line with sort of American diplomacy and American interests. Um, and I, I'm kind of surprised that uh, the German politics has not provided more of a, um, a buffer here, you know, uh, although, you know, I do think Schultz deserves some credit a little bit. Uh, he, I mean, he tried to, I think, do some last minute diplomacy. He couldn't deliver, I guess. Um, he has, I think, you know, of course the Hawks say he's dragging his feet, but I think probably wisely drawn a line at, at, uh, German tanks. I mean, he knows that the optics of you know hundreds or thousands of Russian, uh, of sorry, of German uh, Leopard tanks uh, surging across the Ukrainian plain is not an optic that that uh, is is supports German interests, you know, or German, you know, how they identify themselves in the world. So uh, I think that's correct, and I'm glad that he is kind of drawing a line there. I, I'm glad that he's taking off for China. I mean, uh, he's trying to kind of hold the door open on a kind of, in my view, to kind of a multipolarity, which is really, I think, what the world does need and not this kind of bipolarity from the 1950s. I'm very disappointed in the uh, the current foreign minister in Germany. I think she is, a, you know, she seems to have gone from being a, uh, uh, you know, somebody who would uh, promote peace and, and uh, uh, more ecologically sensitive future i thought that's what the greens were about uh apparently has turned out to be a big hawk um you know and that that to me is uh just shows sort of i don't know uh, the germans are not very uh haven't thought this through uh actually i'm hoping to get to berlin in the near future but i i'm surprised that how, how germany has um drifted away from its um you know, holding line here on on uh, what, what could be disastrous for for Germany. After all, Germany uh, really could. Uh, unfortunately, if this is a limited nuclear war, unfortunately, I believe Germany would be right up there in the uh, in the crosshairs. Unfortunately, um, so because we have know, nuclear weapons stationed in their country, right? At our air right, bases. right, exactly. And and uh, I, I I just think. Um, you know, it's going to take some guts, but Germany um, needs to step up here and and play this kind of balancing game um, that they, they played quite successfully. You know, more or less, I'd like to see a revival of Ostpolitik, uh, where where Germany, given its history, uh, it's incumbent on Germany not to send tanks, but rather to to promote diplomacy and economic interdependence as you said the, the pipeline was not a mistake it was uh, done very purposefully to preserve this critical relationship and that relationship should be preserved uh, uh, but, La, what does it mean that the president of france is calling the pope and beseeching him to beseech biden to talk to russia things really are that desperate i mean it just sounds i don't like being that alarmist it's kind of part of the reason why i was like i don't know if they're really going to invade because 
I hate it when I'm an alarmist and then my alarming thing doesn't happen. That's embarrassing. But then the president of France apparently feels like if he just calls Biden, that's worthless. So he's going to the Pope. Is that an emergency or is that just something in the news cycle and I just picked it out and put some importance on it more than it deserves? Or No, I think, I think you're saying something quite important. I mean, unfortunately, you know... I mean, in Europe, I'm tired I, of you telling me I'm right this whole interview long. It's really frustrating. Uh, in Europe, they're, they're, I think they're justifiably, um, their hair is on fire. I mean, from every point of view, economic, uh, diplomatic, security. Uh, in the United States, you know, everything is sort of mm, not hunky-dory, but I mean, things are are going okay, you know, and and you know, somehow I think, you know, Biden has set up this kind of messianic struggle between uh, authoritarian states and democracies and finds this kind of favorable to to Democratic Party interests. So and, and the Democrats seem to be, well, I guess we have to say all on board. So, I mean, it's it's very, very troubling and uh, just shows, I think, uh, immense um, failure of uh, responsible authorities to to understand the nuclear risks and to um you know, to walk back from the brink. And, and you know, uh, I mean, again, everybody's saying this, but it's right. It's, it's like, how, how can diplomacy be a bad word? That it's just, uh, yeah. you know. All right. Now, so obviously major points here about uh, China, and I won't keep you for another hour, but the headline is Biden sends B-52s to Australia. And the threat they claim is that China, and I'd like your interpretation of the comments of the great dictator over there at the recent commie party meeting that they held and everything. But Blinken says he thinks they're going to invade Taiwan by the end of the year. And they have said, forget ambiguity and one China. We're on the side of the sovereign state of Taiwan pretty damn much. And so... Should we all be at death con too over that? That was the joke. Go ahead. Well, I, I, um, I mean, my view on how dangerous this is, is that it's, uh, it's very dangerous. You know, I've been saying this for a long time, you know, you talked about alarms being alarmist and, and worried when, when, you know, uh, your alarms are ignored or whatever. I, you know, I've been saying the sky is falling on Taiwan policy for, for more than a decade. So oh, I, mean, I don't you know, mind but, that. The only thing that bothers me is when I'm too alarmist and the bad thing I was worried about doesn't happen, then I kind of look right. like a jerk. And I think sometimes right, I'm right. overly conservative when I should be more of a wingnut, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll call me a wingnut. I'm, I'm immensely concerned. I think there are reasons to believe that Taiwan, that China would move against Taiwan earlier rather than later. And um, I'll spell out my logic in a second, but generally I do think it's fair to say that, this whole Ukraine uh, war has has uh, given China quite a substantial scare. I mean, that that's, I think, the conventional wisdom. And I think it's probably quite correct. That is, you know, they've seen just how uh, how isolated Russia is in some ways, uh, how um, how the West can wield all these tools of uh, financial power and so forth. And then um, and they've seen how, um, you know, uh, even even a military that seemingly uh, where, where uh, you know Putin is very confident and I think overestimated his military power. So I you know all these things I think are bothering the Chinese. And that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, there are a lot of d disturbing uh, trends here. Um, 
you know, I think I think I, I do think that uh, the Chinese military is uh, substantially prepared for the invasion. Uh, I think that they are, you know, this is a country that has about almost five times the military budget of Russia. Um, and, you know, like I said, informally, when I was describing Russia's military, Russia's military is stretched in like, you know, at least six or seven directions, uh, only one of which is Ukraine. Um, China, not so much. I mean, sure, they worry a little bit about India, but mostly China's military is bore focused on the Taiwan problem. Uh, and they can move those troops and and be ready to go very, very quickly. I mean, uh, so uh, and also Taiwan is much smaller than Ukraine. You know, people are, you know, it's been pointed out that Taiwan is about the size of Luhansk province. OK, and also it can be cut off quite easily. So there would be no volunteers. Uh, the weapons would not be flowing at all, um, in my view, to to Taiwan in a crisis. So. Uh, now, but what, here's my the nub of my concern. I think the Chinese have been watching all these javelins and stingers and HIMARS and harpoons, all of this stuff, you know, all this glitzy weaponry that we've uh, revealed for everyone. By the way, the Chinese are busy scribbling counter, uh, you know, how do they learn the lessons, how to how to fight against this. But but more than that, I think there's a lot of concern in Beijing that if all these weapons, you know, all the weapons I just named are piling up in in Taiwan. And by the way, most of these weapons shipments are delayed because they're all going to Ukraine right now. So a lot of this weaponry doesn't arrive in Taiwan until 2026, 2027, 2028. So then China looks at the clock and says, now's the best time to go before all that stuff shows up there on the island. So that that is really um, I don't know if what you want to call that a gold the Goldstein window. Uh, I'm I'm very concerned about the next couple of years on Taiwan, and um, but I'm I'm concerned generally partly because I think China is building up its nuclear arsenal. There, you know, I don't have a doubt in my mind that the you know the leadership is is committed to this. And, you know, if they if they unlike Russia, where Putin's in a lot of trouble because a lot of Russians have been killed and the economy is really suffering in China. This is they've budgeted for all this. I mean, they're literally quite willing to lose hundreds of thousands of soldiers to conquer Taiwan. And and that is kind of Trump's. I mean, if you know, so they, they have uh, not only do they have, uh, in my view, they have the capability imbalance favors China by a lot um but it, it's also an asymmetry of will meaning they they consider this a core interest and most americans can't find taiwan on a map and that's yeah. not going to change well now is our navy sleep sailing to the bottom of the pacific here in other words they attack taiwan and it's automatic old sleepy joe biden leans on the lever and everything goes into motion and then it's another slippery slope to nuclear war uh, by the way, I didn't mention that another reason why China may choose to go in the next year or two is they may want to do this while the Ukraine war is going on. So that's that another factor. Sense, yeah. uh, I, I don't know about that, but it's it's definitely a plausible idea. I mean, think about how much of Langley right now. I'd have to believe that three quarters of Langley right now is literally uh, just watching back roads in Ukraine. Uh, sure, all day yeah, that does make sense. And, and and that uh you know they the chinese realize that is advantageous to them because they're not watching back roads back roads in fujian province right? yeah but i mean 
On the question of how certain the Americans are that they would yeah. go to war with China over Taiwan at the drop of a hat, and they, there's no question about that. It's all in the blue notebook, and that's the one you pull off the shelf as soon as the war commences, right or not? Well, I don't think so. I, I hope not. I personally believe that this is a bridge too far, that this is not something that we should do. That there's Yeah, but no what's the consensus is there. what I'm asking, I guess. Um, right. Okay. Well, I guess there's a difference between should and would. Um, well, Biden has, has definitely made noises like that. Um, you know, again, if you look at the polling and things like that, you see a lot of... Um, that uh americans are there's no consensus among the public uh so national security elites tend to lean forward on this and say yes you know we can handle this particularly yeah. from what we learned in ukraine uh but uh i'm i guess i'm arguing against that because i do think as you pointed out that not only um might we you know lose a heck of a lot of ships and i'm talking about literally half of our navy uh, that that concerns me a lot, but there's a substantial chance uh, that American a lot of American air bases would be hit. That uh, I think the CSIS game uh, we got a hint of last summer, I think, showed something like 700 U.S. combat aircraft getting shot down. Um, I, I I believe that game probably underestimated U.S. losses. And my view is, um, uh, yes, this absolutely could also go nuclear for rather similar reasons. And by the way, it may be the U.S. that has to resort to nuclear weapons to to try to end this on, you know, favorable terms uh, for the for the United States. So, I mean, it's it's, you know, we should not go to war against another nuclear power. You know, I mean, we need to use wise diplomacy to avoid that. And Taiwan is the wrong place to uh, make a defense. Uh, you know, we have strong forces in the Asia Pacific and we have um, you know, allies out there uh, who are strong. But um, so I don't think we have to be particularly worried about U.S. national security or the defense of Japan or something like that. So why I, why we would seek to um, try to defend an island that's 90 miles off of Chinese shores and has the literally the title of the island of Taiwan in its constitution is the Republic of China. So, you know, why why we would insist on uh, um getting involved in another civil war uh, is um yeah well see that's the whole key is i mean first of all ever since bill clinton we can get involved in the civil war whenever we feel like it but also they refuse to accept that it's a civil war they pretend that taiwan hasn't been a part of china since the 1600s and that it's you know somewhere near california's coast not china's or something but now let me ask you this because you are from the Naval War College. I know you must eat in the cafeteria with the boys and all that, or you did before you changed jobs there. So there's, you got like a temperature on the consensus of the experts, and I know this can really cut either way, right? Either, yeah, let us at them because we're the Navy and we can kick their ass and we know exactly what their capabilities are and what ours are and we got great plans and we're so macho and look at us. Or it could be actually we ran six or ten war games and we lost every time and we got really sober. And thought, man, we don't want to lose aircraft carriers to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Have to explain to the president why he has to break out the H-bombs now. And so maybe they're a little older and wiser adults running the Navy would try to advise the president that maybe he shouldn't get them into this mess or something. I know I'm just fantasizing here, but I mean, you have to know 
certainly a hell of a lot better than me what they think about that, whether they're just, you know, brash, tough guys sleep, sail into war, or whether they actually might be preaching caution here because they maybe know better and don't want to mm. drown. Well, I mean, I was, I mean, I, you know, from 20 years uh, working for the Navy, I would say I, I did hear a lot of both. Um, so I, I know that's not a, you know, very helpful answer, but I mean, there's a lot of bra bravado and uh, a lot of, you know, the idea that, um, I, I mean, military officers tend to take a view of like, you know, they're given a mission and they, they, whatever, they're not going to say they can't do it. They're going to say they they will do it, you know. Um, so that, that I mean, it, it, it kind of, for, uh, I think, calls out the need for independent specialists to look at this right who who are you know can apply some common sense that's what i've tried to do over time i, I was not really involved in wargaming this out there uh, partly by design i just didn't want to be involved in that um you know um, you know i go to china a lot and things like that so i i i was um trying to stay out of that but i i kept aware of public comments on that and one of them uh you can find uh, i think the name is uh David Akmanek in an article about called Re Real Clear Investigations that came out in 2020. He he was at RAM, but he was also an assistant secretary of defense. And he his he was very emphatic. He said, we lose every single game that that we put together. The U.S. gets um, and he I believe the phrase he used in that article is we get our ass handed to us. Um, so, you know, that was in I believe that article came out again, Real Clear Investigations in 2020 i think if you google david akmanik you should find that i i'm also quoted in that article but he um you know so i mean i think fareed zakaria has alluded to this too so other people have said this that the game after game now there was this recent game at cis where they said the us won but suffered like horrendous casualties including uh, two aircraft carriers down look I, I i generally i think people in the know including those in the navy realize this would be incredibly costly and that we we need to uh try to use diplomacy if we absolutely can i i mean if we you know we better explore all those avenues and so but but yeah i mean as in any i mean the sad truth is that uh, i think people realize that the this this scenario is incredibly helpful to the navy budget <laughs> so and by the way the ukraine war is incredibly helpful to the army budget so i mean you know and the air force is, is sailing on both of those uh wins so i mean you know unfortunately the Pentagon and the whole national security elite is is kind of addicted to these uh, crisis and endless endless crises, if you will. And uh, the great power competition uh, floats all boats in the uh, military industrial complex. So I, you know, I, we need some truth tellers out there to say this is just not in the U.S. national interest. We we can find ways to get along with Russia and China. Uh, neither Taiwan nor the Ukraine are are. Um, of um, they're certainly not core interests, but they they really have um, you know no no great value to U.S. national security. Quite the opposite, they are drawing us inexorably uh, toward wars and potentially nuclear wars. So um, we need to define our national security differently, uh, Scott. And and uh, you know that's that's one thing we're trying to do at Defense Priorities. All right, you guys. That is Lyle J. Goldstein. No wonder your big brother's official enemy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you like that 1984 joke. Uh, defense priorities and the cost of war project at Brown University, which is such an important singular resource 
for the anti-war movement there. So glad to see you're affiliated with them. You guys, take a look at the long version of this. It's really worth the read. Threat inflation, Russian military weakness, and the resulting nuclear paradox. Implications for the war in Ukraine for U.S. military spending by Lyle Goldstein from September the 15th, 22. Thank you again for your time, Lyle. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Always enjoy talking to you. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.